Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And this week, it's just me. Aaron sends his regrets, but he was pretty hoarse on the day we needed to sit down to record. So for the record, this is episode 29 of The Lawyerist Podcast, our weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please take 30 seconds to give us a rating in iTunes. I don't know if you've noticed, but up at the top of Lawyerist.com is a link to our guides. One is our updated guide to great law firm website design, and the other is our computer security upgrade. Here's the thing. You can use the code PODCAST to get 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word PODCAST into the checkout form. Our sponsor today is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, you really should give it a try. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two whole weeks. So today I want to talk quickly about uh, vacationing and how to unplug during your vacation. There was a really good short article in the New York Times today by Nick Bilton about how to do that. And he had a couple of tips in there that I think are really good. Because the thing is, I can't at least just leave my phone at home, right? My iPhone is my camera. Um, I like sharing my vacation with people. But Bilton points out that all of that sharing just adds to the time it takes. You know, you post something on Instagram and then you keep looking at your phone to see how many likes and things that it's gotten. So I think he's right that you need to find a way to disconnect, but you also need to have access to things like Google Maps or Yelp so that you can find your way around because that's how we travel now. So he has a couple of tips. And the first one is if all you really want your phone for is some of the stuff that's stored on it or as a camera, then just leave airplane mode on when you get off the plane. Don't turn it back on. But He also has a different tip for what if you do need some of those things like Google Maps or Yelp or um, some other tools for getting around the city, uh, like maybe your transit app for public transit and stuff like that. Well, I didn't know you could do this, but you can actually go into your phone settings and you can selectively enable cell phone service. So you can turn off cell service for everything except Google Maps or Instagram if you really, really feel like you have to be sharing on the go. So really cool tip. Uh, And all you have to do is go into your phone settings and look at the cell settings Uh, on iPhone. It's easy to get to. I'm quite confident you can do it on Android as well. And what a cool tip for selectively unplugging during vacation. He also has one for uh, making sure that you're available in case of emergencies which don't happen nearly as much as we like to think. We are really not so important, but as solo and small firm lawyers, often we might actually be the only one who can handle things. But his advice is if you have somebody else answering the phone during that time, uh, whether it's Ruby receptionists or whether it's a friend or a colleague in your office who's agreed to pick up your phone, don't turn your cell phone on. Instead, give them the number to the hotel and ask them to only contact you in case of an actual emergency, not just an irate client. 
And you'll be surprised, you probably won't get any calls, but that works perfectly well. You're going to be back in your hotel room at least once a day, and that flashing red light on the handset will let you know that it's time to get a message, and maybe it's an emergency, or maybe it's just the message that hotels all make you listen to when you check in. So I thought those were some really good tips. I will link to the article in the show notes so that you can see what he said. And on to the show. Today I'm talking to Brendan Kenny about e-discovery, which California just said is so important you cannot litigate in a California court unless you understand it. I'm Brendan Kenny, and I'm a lawyer at Blackwell Burke, a firm that represents mostly Fortune 500 companies in class action, mass torts, and product liability in Minneapolis, and I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer there. And thank you so much for being with us today, Brendan. Uh, I want to talk about e-discovery with you, but first, uh, I just want to hear a little bit more about your practice. Um, one of the things that is interesting, I think, about Blackwell Burke is there are only, what, 12 lawyers there, right? Thirteen. Thirteen. Um, so it's a small firm, but you guys don't seem to know that. You guys sort of act like a big firm, don't you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> which is which is interesting. Do you know how that came about? Uh, yes, I do. Would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. Yeah. Yes. Our shareholder and founder, uh, Jerry Blackwell, is, uh, I call him a trial lawyer genius. And mm-hmm. he uh, started out on the plaintiff side. He started out at Robbins Kaplan and cut his teeth over there, trying cases, and moved to the defense side, and eventually, around 2001-ish, uh, went on on his own, and it's now what's called Blackwell Burke, and so he got a reputation as being the go-to guy to try cases, and we got a lot of big clients, big companies who really valued his work, and especially as a trial lawyer, and as time built up, excuse me, as time went on over time, the practice built up to more and more cases. And so we handle, we handle in some cases, we handle the whole aspect of the litigation. In other cases, we handle components. It's, uh, it's kind of part of the whole virtual law practice that a lot of uh, companies are doing these days. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, what does, it, what does it look like day-to-day being at a small, big firm or a big, small firm? Well, I mean, do you have do you have all the practice groups and the governance structure of a big firm or is it a little more of a flat organization like a smaller, like a a more normal small firm would be? I think it's a more normal small firm. And the great thing about that is it's a sort of place where you can really handle as much as you can handle. And there are opportunities to do a lot because there's, there's just so much work and so much interesting work. Uh, you're not going to be sitting around here just writing memos. <laughs> and your practice is litigation and, and you're, you, you're a trial lawyer too, right? Yes. Yes. Now, understandably at a, at a place like this with kind of bet, a lot of bet the company litigation. It's uh, uh, Jerry Blackwell in most of the cases is the person who's doing the number one spot at trial, but there's mm-hmm. many, many opportunities to do a lot of stuff related to it for uh, a lot of people. Well, that's cool. I, I, one of my favorite things is learning about um, how firms look like, what people's practices are like. So I always like to start out and, and plumb that. And I think you're at an, at an un- kind of a Maybe not unique, but uh, an unusual firm. Uh, not in a bad way, obviously, but it's a cool firm. Um, so, but one of your passions is e-discovery, and I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. You actually are passionate about e-discovery, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> Maybe for a reason that's a little different than some people. What's the reason? Well, the reason is 
What I really care about is I care about doing my part for my clients and for the civil justice system in general to make sure that things are run as inexpensively, effectively, uh, and easy to navigate as possible so that cases can get tried on the merits. And there's been a decline in civil trials for decades. And I see one of the reasons is the growth of the cost of e-discovery and all the problems that go along with it. So I've just felt this sort of this interior desire to try to understand why things go wrong in e-discovery, why it's so expensive, and how we can make it work better so that the civil justice system can work better. I know it sounds a little idealistic, but it's really true. That's what I think about all the time. You can ask my wife. (laughs) No, that's awesome. And and this has been something that's frustrated me since I started practicing is, why is e-discovery expensive? Like, computers make everything cheaper except for e-discovery. Oh, that's a hard one. Well, um, why? Well, I think because so few cases go to trial and so few lawyers are focused on what it really takes to win on the merits at trial that it becomes a majoring in minors, I guess you'd say, where it becomes an end in and of itself. And I don't mean to get back on the soapbox of my firm, but because of our size and because of what we do, we're thinking about things of, you know, what can we do to build up our case and present it and win in front of a jury? And I don't think a lot of lawyers look at cases like that anymore. No, you you maybe get bogged down in the minutia of discovery or you're really aiming at settlement, which feels like a step on the way to trial, but is a different strategy entirely. It is. And the other thing I'd say is what I've been thinking about lately is if you think about the life cycle of a case, when is there an adult in the room? Right? <laughs> it's, it's when there's a judge involved making decisions. Mm-hmm. And if some of these e-discovery problems, challenges, you name it, aren't addressed early in front of a judge, you have a huge period of time where there's no adult in the room and both sides are just kind of going back and forth. And so I think that happens a lot, and that's why I'm so interested in, in the rules that are in place in Minnesota, federally, and other places that really focus on parties coming up with uh, agreements or at least where they disagree in e-discovery early so that the scope of the case can be set in stone and so that discovery will just go forth from those parameters early on. And that's not what happens. So let's back up a little bit, and for for uh, people who still think of e-discovery as sort of a, a buzzword that they may not really understand what it is, e-discovery is fundamentally just the discovery of electronically stored information, right? Or is it broader? Precisely. Than that? Okay. Precisely. And and the reason that really. I, I've, I'm trying to make the case uh, that every lawyer should know something about e-discovery because more and more of the information that we deal with that may or may not eventually make it into litigation, the information that our clients store, um, there, there are implications for all of that when it finally gets to a case and there is e-discovery, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, there's something that every lawyer, everyone should know about. It's, it's a little different if you're on the litigation side or the transaction side, I suppose, but I think it's, it's important for everyone to know the basics. So what gets thorny about e-discovery, right? Because printing out documents in PDF format is no big deal, right? You don't really, do you, do you need to 
obsess about native format when it comes to simple stuff like that, or is that not as simple as I think it is? Well, it depends on the case. You know, it depends on the case. You know, I, I think if you if you have one, I'm just trying to think hypothetically where there's no email, where all the relevant information is in an official form or something like that, mm-hmm. and my mind isn't working well in coming up with cases <laughs> like that because I never work in those kind of cases. It, it could very well be the case that native form doesn't matter, but it matters a ton other times. Uh, just to give an example why native form is so important is, uh, let's say, let me back up a little bit. Well, let me let me back up a little bit too, too because because I think na- so native format comes up a lot, and uh, somebody in the comments the other day said my you know my understanding is that um, everything must be produced in native format, but that's not right, is it? Native format is a is sort of like a platonic ideal that you can never actually get because we don't read data in the way that computers do. It's a it's more of a discussion point, right? Like how much yes. of the native format do you need in any particular case in order to get the evidence you're looking for? Yeah, I think that's fair. Let's say native-ish is important because yeah. PDF is is a glorified piece of paper. There's not anything, with some exceptions, without getting into the weeds on it. It's basically a, a glorified piece of paper. It's not much different than uh, than presenting a, a piece of paper. And but so a Word document with, is a very different thing. Oh boy, yeah. Well, let's just, if you don't mind, just one example why it's so important. Yeah. You know, I have a, I have a, let's say I'm in a case and I produce a PDF and it's the final version of some Word document or, or a version without any of the comments or whatever. But if I get into the Word document, here's what I have. I know when it was created, the author, when it was modified, kind of who was making comments, changes, and when. And, uh, oh gosh, so much else. So there's no comparison. And that could be the most important point in the case. Well, sure, Word saves how much time that you were actually working on the document. Um, Your operating system might might store some of that information as well. I mean, the the document itself is so much more than the text on the page. Yes, absolutely. And and related to that, it's a little to the side, but I just want to say it before I forget it, is you can also, if you understand the basics of an operating system e-discovery technology, you can know a lot about the documents you're dealing with, just knowing the file type, when they were created, who the author is. So a lot about a document without actually seeing the substance of the documents. I think that's a really important point, especially when you're negotiating with the other side about something. Well, and, and I suppose in a lot of cases, companies aren't actually storing documents. They're storing information in databases. And the information that's stored in the database may be worthless unless you have the software that the database goes with. Yes. And sales, I say, I only say the specific one because it's come up in several cases. Salesforce.com would be an example of that. There's been quite a few cases that have dealt with problems of collection, preservation, and production of stuff from Salesforce.com. Well, or, and uh, I used to sue debt collectors, and they, um, they use databases in their collection software. And, uh, at one point, I had a discussion with somebody about native format, and they said, look, I can give it to you in native format, but you're going to need this $50,000 piece of software to, to view it in native format. So let's go right. back to the drawing board and figure out how I can produce this information in a way that is useful to you. Right. And it might be 
that just getting it exported as, as an Excel spreadsheet would be enough. And that's and, and, that worked out for us, um, but I certainly wasn't getting it in native format, um, right. which, which is why I was saying native format is a way to start the conversation about what is the information that you get and how can it be satisfactorily represented to you with an eye towards budget, probably. Right. And, and we'll just consider, we talk so much about documents, but cases are about establishing a cause of action. And if you could get the other side to admit uh, a fact or something that would establish a cause of action or establish an issue, you wouldn't need to produce any documents connected to that. So that's mm -hmm. something people forget about. And I, I appreciate your example, because in that example, you actually talked to the other side. And so many of these cases we, we see, there's not much talking and discussion going on. But that is what the courts want to happen, right? They want the lawyers to get together and figure out what they need. Yes. And it's in our best interest to do that. I can't say that enough. <laughs> it's about winning. If we right. want to win, this is going to help us. I, mm -hmm. I can go off on that, but I'll <laughs> you can go on the next thing, whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> so I think that uh, I think that every lawyer needs to have a basic understanding of e-discovery because even if you never enter a courtroom, um, it, it might impact the way your clients does things, whether your client is a business or whether, uh, you know, they're, you know, maybe, maybe if you're an estate planning lawyer, it doesn't come up except in it's not e-discovery. You have to worry about it's digital and <laughs> digital legacies, but, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's just sort of a fundamental understanding of the way information is stored and works. So if you're representing a small business and you're their transactional lawyer, wouldn't it, make sense to take what you know about e-discovery and help advise them about their systems? Oh, certainly, certainly, because, uh, you know, e-discovery interacts with all sorts of things, uh, with information governance, with security as well. So you're going to need to know something about how documents are maintained or technology to make sure that your client is preserving and, and safeguarding their information. They're not just putting it up somewhere willy-nilly where it could be hacked. So if you're going to know enough to know about that, you can know about e-discovery as well. And so if, if I'm considering, well, where do I have to have my client's uh, data in a way that's safe, I can also be thinking about, well, what's the best way to re retain it? What's the policies we should come up with um, on how long to keep it or where to keep it or in what form to keep it? Uh, because if that isn't dealt with on the front end, it's, it's really a stitch in time saves nine. It, if I'm representing that company, it comes to me. I'm the litigator. I can say what should be done on preserving and collecting the information and also producing it. But I, I don't have much much influence on how the system was set up in most cases. Well, and so like, I, and this is now I'm I'm way out of my competence as a lawyer, but I'm I'm sort of into my competence as a business owner, which is like one of the things I want to know is where is our information, right? We we own this information, so where is all of it, and how do we get at it? Which is something I want to know. You know, like if I if I fire somebody, I want to make sure that I can get my their their emails back, so I know what they were telling people. Um, I want to make sure that I can back everything up, and I, in order to do that, I need to know where it is. Um, and I also want to know that it's stored and backed up, and that it's safe. And we have a document destruction policy. What is that? And do are we prepared to retain information if something happens, like litigation, where we need to hold on to it? So I think. I mean, that, that's just me making things up, but I think those are some of the issues you'd want to talk about with your clients. 
you're not making anything up. Oh, and <laughs> these are the sorts of things we talk about uh, at the Twin Cities Discovery Forum, uh, something group I founder and president of and we meet and uh, there's a lot of people involved but we talk about mostly from a, a big corporation side about what are what are our bring your own device policies you know mm-hmm. who has the data there because the problem is is not only you're saying hey I want to get that stuff that if I fire somebody but you need to get the stuff have the access to it because let's say you get sued and someone uh, one of those uh, the person suing you wants to get the data and they might say well you figure it out mm-hmm. and so that's it's a big problem and you also want to think about you know what where's as you said where's this data going to be because that really depends how how you can get it and what is relevant from the standpoint of, of, of discovery. You know, so so either either side you're on, you need to you need to know about your uh, your data and where it is so that you can you can actually even make an argument about what you can and can't get. Uh, oh, and I have a very simple fear, which is if we get sued and the information on my laptop comes uh, comes up under. Uh, gets requested in discovery, um, then what, do I just lose my laptop for a few weeks while <laughs> while it's getting imaged? So that kind of freaks me out. And so I, I want to know, like, it, does it make sense for me to mingle my personal and business stuff on one laptop? Um, because at, like most small companies, there's no bring your own device. There's only your own devices. Um, right. And, and so, so am I, and is my personal data going to wind up on an image that is the subject to discovery in litigation somewhere because I've intermingled my work and personal stuff. And I don't even know the answer to that, but if, that kind of freaks me out. So, Well, that's a good point. You know, and the, I think the, the thing, if you're a transactional attorney or you're starting a corporation or whatever, you know, think of the, think of the, the litigator, or the lawyer you're likely to get rather than the one you want. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to you have to think. Well, there's all sorts of arguments that could be made, and a technologically competent lawyer could, you know, make sure that even though the stuff's intermingled on your laptop, that there's a a, a, a safe and and fair way to get at the actual data that's relevant to the case and not anything else. It would be best to come to have a system where it would be as foolproof as possible, because often what will happen in in my my brother is a is a employment lawyer on the plaintiff side, so he runs into this a lot representing single uh, individuals, where the other side will want to will basically say they're entitled to the whole device, basically because mm-hmm. there's something relevant on it. And of course, you can make arguments and should make arguments saying, well, if this was the old days and you had a filing cabinet, you wouldn't say that the other side could look through the whole filing cabinet or have the filing cabinet because there might be a relevant piece of paper in it. Uh, that's sometimes not. Uh, the kind of argument that a judge or certainly the other side is is going to buy. So you you want to be thinking about this and and have have some technological hacks, so to speak, built in uh, so that uh, that's you can make as strong as argument as possible about what they should and shouldn't get. And and just have these conversations with your clients. This is you know I think I think because lawyers. Uh, have the have the legal knowledge about what happens to technology in a courtroom um, or or in whatever dispute resolution forum you wind up in um, we probably also have a duty to talk to our clients about that and because the way they organize their businesses up front the way they deal with their IT solutions 
all of that stuff has implications for what might happen if things go wrong if you or even if they don't go wrong and you end up in a courtroom down the line and so it's not even that that um, you or I have the prescription but it's that it's a conversation that you need to have because your clients won't be might not be aware of it unless you bring it up only if your clients want to win right, right. I mean, <laughs> you know if they don't they don't care about that don't do it right, right. That's that's it. You know, that's really what it comes down to. Sometimes I'm frustrated when people talk about what the ethical rules require and knowledge of technology. I just think, well, if you don't know the technology or don't know someone who does, it's going to affect your your client's ability to prevail at trial or be successful as a business or whatever. So you need to know it, right? If you want to do the best job for your client and your client would want to win. When you say you say that it's really important to know how your client's systems work in order to deal with e-discovery, and it seems to me that business systems in some ways may even be easier to understand than, let's say, a family lawyer or a work comp lawyer or a criminal defense lawyer who's dealing with text messages and Facebook and, um, and Snapchats. Yes, that is really true, and that's why, in some ways, those sorts of lawyers have, you know, have to get their hands quite a bit dirtier in some ways because mm -hmm. they're trying to get their their arms around a person and everywhere that a person is involved, you know, in out there in the in the uh, in the world of data and. If you're just if you're representing a business, they usually have a discernible system, you know. Right. So you know the you know how things are maintained, you know the the you know what's done, and, and the advantage of a of a smaller company is you can be more sure that a policy that the company has, like a records retention schedule or a bring your own device type policy, might actually be followed. Whereas at a big company, it's great that the system's there, but you need to know much more what people are actually doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, what sorts of, I mean, for a family lawyer or a criminal defense lawyer, uh, you know, where, what are the sorts of things that you might come up for them in the e-discovery context? Social media, social media, social media. And uh, certainly. And what, what about messaging? Because now uh, social media is kind of getting fuzzed up with messaging. And I keep thinking in my head, you know, what if you what if you've got a client who's sitting in front of you showing you an incriminating Snapchat and you look at it for too long and it disappears? Have you just spoliated evidence? <laughs> well, that's that's a good point. And the other thing, that's a really good point. But even beyond that, you know, let's just let's just go back to persuasion a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. and, the, and the lawyer says, "Well, I can get away with this. I won't get in trouble." If if my I'm a criminal defense lawyer, you know the jury probably isn't gonna isn't gonna think very kindly of my client to begin with. I'm gonna say, you know, you need to lay off the Snapchat for a while because it doesn't look good. And the reason it doesn't look good is one of the things I, I talk about a few things that happen in e-discovery that can sink a case. And one I call the uh, the black box problem. And what that means is, is when, when you're to the point where uh, you've lost credibility, you know, from a jury or a judge because you're, you're talking about something to do with e-discovery or documents or what's there, what's reasonable, or you name it, and you've lost that credibility, then the other side can pretty effectively say, hey, there's this document that should be here. You should have maintained, and it would have said all this bad stuff, but it's not here. So now mm -hmm. you're arguing with something in a black box, 
you know, and you can't they, argue they that put, it didn't say that because it's awfully self-serving that it disappeared at a convenient time. Yes. <laughs> and any, and once you lose credibility, even in a not that big data case, even in a, a typical, let's say, criminal case where you have some deleted social media or text message in an employment case, it can look really bad and, and people will fill in a narrative that mm-hmm. infers wrongdoing if you've already lost some credibility or a client has already lost credibility. So it's, it's hugely, I just can't overemphasize how important it is. I, maybe it makes sense to talk a little bit more about what what happens when lawyers don't handle e-discovery properly. Um, And one of the things that I have noticed is um, lawyers don't handle it properly by not paying attention to it in their own case first, right? It's like, it's like the stories about the work comp lawyers, uh, the work comp uh, uh, petitioner who winds up having photos on their Facebook page of them partying on all on their legs. They're later trying to claim are both broken. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so step one is knowing what your client, what you have and what your client has, I, th- I think. Yes. Yes. Um, you Not know, waiting and, for the it, other side to demand it. <laughs> well, and, and that's the other thing that, that frustrates me is if, let's just talk about spoliation, which is sort of the nuclear option, you know, where, where, mm-hmm. Something happens, a document's gone, and bad things happen to you and your client because of that, right? The thing is, is spoliation typically happens. Typically, there's not these evil people deleting things on purpose. And so spoliation happens because data isn't preserved at an early point, and it goes away. Well, if you know your client's documents and you know what's going on and you can go to the other side and talk to them and argue some of the stuff out early, you can at least, you know, preserve something and and make sure it doesn't disappear. So, so many of these problems that happen, happen because the e-discovery and the data and all those related things weren't even addressed at the early stages of the case. And by the time they get addressed, it's too late. This is at, at a big company, this is called a litigation hold, right? Yes, and it's at a small called company, a litigation hold for everybody. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I suppose so. <laughs> um, and that's just when you've identified here are the sorts of things that are probably going to be subject to this lawsuit, and we're making a reasonable effort to hold on to them so they don't disappear. And now you can't accuse us of spoliation. Right. It, keep in mind, you know, I would say this to everybody, having been around when we were still back in the old days, and and people saw litigation holds as like a letter you send to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much of the stuff can be done on the back end. And what I mean by that is by IT or something, uh, someone like that. And so that's why it's so important, you know, if you're, let's say, representing a small company, that you understand how your client systems works and you talk to the person who understands that and they can help you on the best way to preserve and later on collect data. You, you don't want to necessarily be in a situation where you're, relying on some written piece of paper and saying, uh, here's in the broadest possible sense what this case is about. Don't delete anything. You know, cause well, I, that, uh, yeah, I can mm-hmm. think of this happening in some really mundane ways. Like if you, you know, what happens if somebody empties the trash in Outlook and you haven't, fig- you haven't backed that up in some way, um, you know, can they just be dumping documents that you might need? They could. They yeah. could. Uh, even drafts. I mean, that's another thing too, right? I mean, you have, if you have drafts in Outlook or mm-hmm. drafts somewhere else, uh, you need to, you, you, you'll need to do that as well. So you don't want to rely necessarily 
on the individual person themselves uh, to decide it. Use the, use the technology to have your bases covered because even if the person does everything right, uh, you have a situation where they need to be the person that'll, let's say, testify in a deposition and uh, and say that. You much rather be able to have an IT person or some you know custodian of records, someone like that. They can say, well, you know, these are the these are the processes we used, and and this is when it happened, and here's this printout that shows you uh, how it was done. You know, you don't want to have to rely on um, some person manually. Uh, preserving relevant data and what would a litigation hold look like in a in a more of a consumer level case like family law or personal injury or criminal law is that like that's mostly just a conversation that you have with your client about social media about their home computer stuff like that isn't it yeah, yes, you probably you'd want to have it in writing in some way just so you have your uh, bases covered uh, because that that tends to be what people want and mm-hmm. it would it's helpful. Although so, if you want them to listen to you, you probably should tell them as well. <laughs> oh, well, well, of course. I'm just saying from the standpoint of making sure you have your bases covered oh, with yeah. the court. But in terms of actually preserving what should be, yeah, you should have that conversation and 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 get really to use the kind of overused word granular with your with your client. When I mean social media, I mean Facebook, I mean LinkedIn, I mean this, I mean that, and the other thing. And you know, go from from there. Definitely don't tell them to you know get rid of get rid of stuff or anything like that because it it can look pretty bad even if it's it's not bad. <laughs> now is probably not the time to delete f- photos off of your iPhone or. Um, right or clean yeah clean up your facebook profile or yes <laughs> if you get snapchat messages oh yeah, yeah. and if, i mean if you get snapchat messages that are in any way related to this don't don't watch them until they expire um you know take screenshots make sure that we save them in some way right and just think about how you're how you're communicating again you know with snapchat there's a i think a presumption on some many people's part that the, there's the uses of Snapchat aren't necessarily really highly business related, which I don't think is necessarily the case, but a lot of people think that. So you want to consider how it's going to In fact, the people look. I know who use it most use it at their company. <laughs> right. No, I agree with you. I, I think it's one of those things that it, it ha- it's useful. It has some great business purposes, but I don't have any confidence that today that's going to be in the mindset of most judges opposing counsel and juries. Mm-hmm. No, it's the lawyer's job to bring that to the client's attention and say, here are, here are some of the areas that you have to pay attention to. Yes. Yes. So when, for, when it comes to the average lawyer, um, can you encapsulate what they need to know about e-discovery in a nutshell? Yes. Uh, they need to know that e-discovery <laughs> is just discovery that's uh, based on electronic documents. So the rules that apply to e-discovery are the same rules, broadly speaking, that apply to hard copy discovery. And our job is to know where our clients' documents are and how they're maintained. And that we need to see, the average lawyer needs to see that dealing with e-discovery early on is a way to win because you want to know what documents are involved what you want from the other side, what you have, so that you can, you can talk to the other side and force the other side to take a position based on the claims and defenses in the suit at the time. 
Mm-hmm. Because if you wait till later, what can and many times will happen is that there will, because the issues weren't addressed, there will be a deficiency in the case, a problem in the case from the other side, and they will use e-discovery as a way to fill that gap, an e-discovery problem to fill that gap. And and thirdly, you know this, uh, you need to you need to know that that e-discovery, if it isn't handled, is, is something that is going to cost your client uh, a lot more money. And if, you, if you're able to do a good job with it, you're, you're going to really uh, be better in comparison to other attorneys that, that don't because you're going to be able to, to offer a better service for your client that they don't get uh, other places. You know, I just say this in, in, in closing from talking to at least on the in-house side and other people who hire lawyers, there's a presumption of competence among lawyers. You know, they're going to, excuse me, among clients, they're going to assume that lawyers can do the basis, basics of a lawsuit, uh, be able to defend the case and do all that stuff. So if there's anything that you can focus on to show you, that show them that you can do uh, the sorts of things that maybe they're not accustomed to other lawyers doing, that's only going to be uh, better for you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and for your enthusiastic discussion of e-discovery, Brendan. Uh, Thank you for having me. This episode of The Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings, it's an interruption, kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because Uh, The ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person. Tell them I'll call them back later. Please take a message. Or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end.
So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.